Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's begin reading with verse 8 and read through to the end of the chapter. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and set out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you again. You alone can enlighten us. You alone can help us to apprehend your word in a way that is for the edification, for the good of our souls, and for the glory of our Savior. We pray that today we would truly hear his voice and would follow him wherever he leads, even from this portion of his word. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. How would you end a book like Ecclesiastes? You know, writers always have some thinking to do about how do you begin and how do you end a book. The middle is usually not quite as hard, but a good introduction, something that catches your attention, something that draws you in, and a conclusion that's satisfying, something that doesn't just fizzle out and die That's always a little bit of a challenge for any time you're making a speech or giving a sermon or writing a book. And Ecclesiastes ends with a sort of a postscript. Now, you'll notice at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1 and verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then chapter 12, verse 8 is pretty similar to that. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So up to that point, you could kind of think of Ecclesiastes as going in a circle. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He explains how and why that's true. He also includes something about what to do about it. But then when he comes up, he hasn't invalidated that premise. He's confirmed it, and so he repeats it. And that's one good way to make a satisfying essay or sermon is go in a circle, wind up back where you started, but now with more depth, with more richness. If people have followed you on your way through that writing or through that speech, when they come back around to the beginning point, well, now it means a lot more than it did when they read it the first time in the beginning of the book. So in one sense, you could say, well, Chapter 12, verse 8 sounds like the end of the book, doesn't it? But then what do you do with verses 9 through 14, which are also there, where you can just keep reading and say, it was almost like the book was going to stop, but then there was a postscript. There was a little bit added after you'd made the circle. So it's like a cue. There's a big O, but then there's a little tail hanging off. We can think of 
verses 9 through 14 as the tale on the capital Q for Kohelet. Kohelet is spelled with a Q, in case you were wondering how that came about. What do we do with this little tale? Kohelet is the word for Ecclesiastes, for the preacher as it's rendered here. What do we do with this little tale? Well, first of all, Ecclesiastes is a complicated book. I think everybody will agree to that. People may not agree on anything else, but at least they agree that Ecclesiastes is complicated. Well, one of the things you want to do when you've dealt with something complicated is you do want to summarize, you do want to conclude it, you do want to give a bottom line. What should you not miss out of this book? Well, verses 13 and 14 give us what you should definitely not miss. Whatever else you take away from Ecclesiastes, learn this, fear God and keep his commandments. There is a judgment coming. That's a very important lesson. You cannot afford to miss that from Ecclesiastes. And of course, that's something that he'd said before. He'd talked about the fear of God, for instance, in chapter five. He's mentioned that judgment is coming before chapter 11. So he's pulling out from there, here's a bottom line for you. But before we get to the bottom line, there's a little bit more that he's going to deal with. And part of this postscript is a description, is a further elaboration. What else did the preacher, what else did Ecclesiastes or Kohelet do? Well, verse 9 tells you, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and set out or and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. So the first part of this postscript is about the author. It's about what his overall mission and goal was. It tells you he was wise, and then it tells you what he did with that wisdom. And it's broken up into two main categories. He taught the people knowledge. What is wisdom for? Well, wisdom is for sharing. Wisdom is not so you navigate life conveniently, so you know what to do about the vanity of life, and you can get ahead of all of the rest of those people. Wisdom is for sharing. And that is what the preacher did. He did it, of course, in part through the book of Ecclesiastes. We can all be the beneficiaries of his wisdom because of what he did here. Then there was also a work of compiling. Notice what it says. He pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. That doesn't mean he didn't think up any original Proverbs, but that wasn't his only task. That wasn't the only thing he did. He also explored, he investigated, he tried to discover Proverbs from other sources and he weighed them and then he put them together in an organized format. For me, not everybody will agree with this, but for me at least, that kind of sounds like a description of the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? We know that Solomon wrote many more Proverbs, but included in the book of Proverbs is a long section that comes from an Egyptian collection of Proverbs, and we actually have that Egyptian collection of Proverbs predating Solomon. Archaeologists have found written records from before Solomon 
So when you put those things together, it certainly sounds like Solomon didn't just invent his own Proverbs, although I'm sure he did come up with many of them by the guidance of God's Spirit. He also found good Proverbs from other sources, and he weighed them. Maybe he rephrased them a little bit. Maybe he tweaked them. But he wrote them down and he set them in order. Now, of course, we know that portions of the book of Proverbs were actually set in order by some people under Hezekiah. But the main bulk of the book from chapter 10 through about chapter 22 has Proverbs of Solomon. And then you have collections that others added subsequently to that. And then you have the first nine chapters, which are a little bit of a different character. This could be describing the core or the genesis of the book of Proverbs. But whatever the specific referent is, I want you to think about this activity for a second. Pondering, seeking out, and setting in order many Proverbs. There's an investigative activity. In other words, there's an openness to learning from many sources, included in our inspired books of the Bible are some Egyptian words that came from a completely different source. And you do have that phenomenon to some extent in the New Testament as well. You might remember from 1 Corinthians 15, evil communications corrupt good manners or bad company corrupts good morals as it's rendered in more contemporary language. That wasn't original to Paul. That comes from the Greek poet Menander. You might remember him on Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He quotes the Greek poet Aratus. Aratus was writing about Zeus, the Greek sky god, and he said, we are also his offspring. Paul says, as one of your own poets has said, we are his offspring. We shouldn't think that God is like these images you've made of him here in Athens because we are his offspring. He's able to quote a Greek poet approvingly. He does it again in writing to Titus as well. He quotes a Cretan poet on that occasion. What is all of this about? You know, this might seem like a trivial point, but I want to connect it to something really big. The trivial point, if you will, is that God's inspired penmen, those who wrote down the scripture, were open to learning things. They were eager to hear good, true things even if that didn't originate within the covenant people of God. Solomon pondered and sought out many proverbs. And now there's two interesting factors that we need to put together here to really see the value, to really see the significance of this. Have you noticed that in the book of Ecclesiastes, God's covenant name, Jehovah, does not occur. It's not found in this book. God is mentioned, but not that covenant name, Jehovah, not I am that I am, which God used for entering into covenant and which he explained most fully to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Now, try to keep these facts in mind. Solomon sought out many proverbs from other sources. God's covenant name is not used in this book of the Bible, And now look at the beginning of verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Now, 
There's many different ways to take that phrase. But when you put these different things together, I think you need to say two things about it. One, you need to say this is for everybody. This is not limited to one group or a certain set of individuals. This is for everybody. It's universal. What were all people created for? Why do any human beings exist? Well, you have the answer to that in Genesis. God created us in his own image. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Subdue it. God designed. God commissioned a world filled with his image where he was represented from pole to pole, if you will. We know that's not what happened, but that was what God commissioned. All human beings, then, the design of their creation is to give glory to God, to fear him and keep his commandments, to use that Old Testament language for it. So this is for everybody. Now, it also tells us then that we all find our meaning, we find our value, we find our purpose in this. And this is one reason why the world goes so crazy. People are looking for transcendence or they're looking to substitute for it. People are looking for a real meaning, something that will give value to their lives. And when they don't find it in the right place, they come up with all kinds of crazy substitutes. If you analyze people's behavior through this lens, it explains a lot. What it doesn't explain, you can probably explain by environment or the force of bad example or other things like that. But this explains a lot. So how do we put all of that together? I I do remember I'm supposed to be bottom lining things for you. So how do we put all of this together? Well, as human beings created by God in God's world, Dealing with God is not an option. You have to deal with God one way or another. You might not have been born within the church. You might not have been within the covenant community where God's name is known, where God's revelation is a great deal more clear. But wherever you are, God has not left himself without witness. Paul says that to pagans who knew nothing of special revelation in Acts chapter 14. Their encounter with Paul was the first time they'd come into contact with special revelation. But to them, God said, God has not left himself without witness. Every human being is faced with the reality of God. Every human being has to deal with God in one way or another. Every human being will be brought into judgment. You don't want to be dealing with God for the first time on the day of judgment. That's leaving it too late. That's waiting too long. This is a book where the author deliberately takes the perspective of limiting himself to what is under the sun. And yet, even as he limits himself to under the sun, even as he doesn't necessarily draw on special revelation to any notable degree, yet he still continually comes back and mentions the reality of God. Everybody you run into, even if they're self-proclaimed atheists, they are faced with the reality of God. It is inescapable in our world. They may be suppressing that knowledge. They may be holding it under, but it's there. They are God's creatures in God's world. They are not going to be able to shut their eyes 
to the reality of God. So Ecclesiastes helps us in relating to everyone because they all know this. Ecclesiastes helps us in knowing what do they need. They need to know this. They need to know more than this. I'm not arguing about that. But they do need to know this. Where do you begin with people? You were created by God. You were created for God. Nothing is going to be right when you don't fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. So you see here the wisdom of vanity. Why does Solomon go through this project of showing how the world can never satisfy? Because he's got all these people who think that it can. He's got all these people who are looking for some substitute so they don't have to reckon with God. He knocks all the substitutes away to leave them in a place of clarity. You must deal with God. So this helps us with our evangelism as well. It's not that you never talk, begin by talking about the Lord Jesus. It's not that you would never begin by highlighting his character or something about him. But sometimes people are not ready for that quite yet. Sometimes people need a foundation to be laid. Now, if they've already had this foundation laid, you can move more quickly. But you are God's creature in God's world, and nothing will be right unless you fear God and keep his commandments. That is a beginning point for teaching, for evangelism, for apologetics. It's very important to remember that. That's something that you can talk to about people with a very different religious background or people with a completely non-religious background. Of course, you have to explain, you have to maybe overcome some misconceptions about who God is and so forth. But you are God's creature in God's world and you are accountable to God. That's pretty bottom line for apologetics and evangelism. That's a necessary starting point. But we can't spend all of our time here. I only have one more sermon scheduled for this series, not three more. So we need to move on to verses 11 and 12. Actually, still haven't finished verse 10. Okay, quickly, quickly, quickly on verse 10. He pondered, he sought out, he set an order. What did he do with those Proverbs, though? He sought to find acceptable words or words of delight, words that were pleasant, words that gave pleasure to the hearer or to the reader. Now, he was writing uprightly. He was writing truth. Those are the two qualities that good writing should have. It should be true and it should give pleasure. And writing works best when it does both of those things. If you sacrifice one for the other, ultimately you compromise both. And you can read the Bible and you can see that everybody is aiming in that same general direction. Some have more innate gifts than others, but the Bible is never written to just be hard to read. And yet, of course, it's always written with truthfulness. Sometimes you have people, they'll read anything. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, as long as it sounds good. Or then you'll have people who, well, I don't care if it sounds good or not, as long as it tells me the truth. But according to Solomon, according to the preacher, both are important. Now, verses 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails. I think there's two separate metaphors here. On the one hand, what do the words of the wise do? Well, they're like goads. They prick us to action. You know, sometimes we can just sit around and kind of be idle and self-satisfied and we don't realize all the many different opportunities that there are for growth in our lives. And then the words of the wise come along and 
we get back into gear. We start moving forward again. That's part of the value of the words of the wise, Proverbs and other books like it, the whole scripture really. It spurs us out of our complacency. And we need that. And we need that more than once. You're not going to need to be spurred up, encouraged to take action and be diligent one time. You're going to need those reminders multiple times over the course of your life. But they're also like nails. They also give stability. They also fasten and secure you. And you can't overlook the importance of what it says, given by one shepherd. Now, I want you to think back. Remember that discussion, how Solomon sought out Proverbs from different sources. Remember how Paul was open to hearing things from many different sources. Remember how Paul said that God had not left himself without witness. The words of the wise are not limited to the words of the wise in Israel. We can prove that from the book of Proverbs. But they were all given by one shepherd. Now, As far as I know, shepherds are not particularly renowned for their proverbial approach to life. But one shepherd, some people went to say, well, this is a certain shepherd. Like there's one particular shepherd who did this. And in that case, you'd probably think of David with all the Psalms that he wrote. But of course, shepherd is also often a metaphor. Shepherd will be a metaphor for ruler for the one who nurtures and provides and sustains and defends a people. And of course, ultimately the one shepherd is, well, you know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 80, the shepherd of Israel. Who is it in the ultimate analysis? It is God. Being more specific, referencing the New Testament, John chapter 10, we can say it is the Lord Jesus. He is the good shepherd. Again, remember Ecclesiastes. God's covenant name is not used. It is for all people throughout the whole world in a variety of different ways. The Lord did not leave himself without witness. God gave nails. The nails came from one shepherd. Now, people did different things with that truth. I'm not saying that there was saving, illumination, going along with this activity outside of Israel, outside of God's covenant. But the witness was there. When there were true things said and thought, when people apprehended something about who God is, when they weren't completely successful in suppressing that truth, one shepherd was at work. That one shepherd remains, of course, at work today. Now, then Solomon says something that sounds like it should belong in the book of Proverbs. You know, in the book of Proverbs, again and again, he says, my son. It's in chapter one, it's in chapter three, it's in chapter four, it's in chapter five, again and again, because the format of Proverbs is that here's a king giving advice for how to be a good king, how to establish his household and his dynasty to an heir, to a successor. So again and again, you have that language of my son. This is the only place where that occurs in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. You remember with Ecclesiastes, more than one thing can be true at a time. You have to keep multiple things in mind. There are many goads. There are many nails that were given to many different people in many different places through many different ages by one shepherd. And all of those goads and nails have their value. They're all something that we can take on board as we come across them, as we're exposed to them. We need to ponder them. We need to weigh them. We need to evaluate them because unless it's in the Bible, you don't know at first blush whether it's from the one shepherd or not. But if it's from the one shepherd, you can take it on board. However, that doesn't mean that everything that was said is from the one shepherd. Solomon never loses sight of the two sides of things. He's always aware that you can turn the coin over and see the other side. Of making many books, there is no end. There's many, 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 many things to know, but that doesn't mean it's profitable to know all of them. Much has been written, but probably too much has been written. You're never going to keep up with all the books. Much study is wearisome to the flesh. You remember Paul talks about women who were always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. How do you judge? How do you determine? How do you figure out, is this worthwhile to learn about or is this just a waste? Well, where does it lead you? What is the bottom line? The nails, the goads that are given from one shepherd will come back to the conclusion of the whole matter. They will come around to this in one way or another. They may take different paths to get there. But if this is not the conclusion, then they're not helping. They're part of what is weariness to the flesh instead of real help for coping with life in a world riddled with vanity. What should the conclusion be? Well, you already know it. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. So what does this portion of Ecclesiastes do for us? Well, summarizing, repeating a little bit, it equips us to interact with everybody. It tells us the bottom line. What do they need to know? They need to know that they're God's creature in God's world, that they're accountable to God. That's a non-negotiable starting point. It also tells us that there may well be things that they already know that we can take advantage of. Many goads and many nails were distributed by one shepherd. It tells us how to check. It teaches us how to be discerning with what you read, with what you hear, with what you take in, with all the advice, with all the goads and the nails that are floating around in this world. Just look at the self-help books in a bookstore or on an online bookstore. There are thousands of them. How do you judge? How do you tell? Do they help you to fear God and keep his commandments? If not, then they're not worth it. But it also shows us a facet, an aspect of the work of the Lord Jesus that maybe we have not considered or don't think about very often. He is one shepherd. He is guiding and leading and protecting his sheep, but he has distributed things that will help his sheep in many different places. He has done that as a witness to himself that his preachers like Paul can capitalize on when they come there. 
but he's also done it for our good. So as you hear proverbs, as you hear slogans, as you run into wisdom that comes from outside of the church, you don't have to reject it. You just have to test it. If it's true, if it's pleasant, if it helps you to fear God, then you can be confident that it was given by the one shepherd. Did you realize that there's this whole other dimension to the work of Christ, that he's been working from before he was incarnate for the good of his church, for your good around the world? What a wonderful light to have on the work of our Savior, how it highlights his commitment to us from even before his birth. Amen.